Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you have questions from our study, contact me at vbvpodcast.com. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast through whatever platform you use to listen and share it with others also. Acts 19, 21 through 23 is our reading today. Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome also. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Because of the length of today's reading, we will be covering Acts 19.21 through 20, verse 1, which is a very long section. I will allow this portion to suffice as an introduction, but we will work through the whole text in the course of the study. In our last study, we considered some of the amazing things that characterized Paul's ministry in Ephesus during his third missionary journey, in which the power of God, especially over and against evil spirits, was manifest in such a way that it resulted in tremendous progress for the kingdom of God in that community. Luke not only reports that many were saved by turning to Christ, but that their conversion to him was marked by powerful manifestations of repentance and repudiation of old sinful ways of living. In Acts 19.21, the narrative continues, When these things were accomplished, that is, after this progress and forward movement of God's work was seen, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. The meaning of the phrase, Paul purposed in the Spirit, is difficult to define with certainty. Even Bible scholars who are quick to see the Holy Spirit in texts where others are more reticent to see him Note that this may refer to Paul's own internal reasoning and determination based on how the word spirit was used in the somewhat near context of Acts 18.5. Although, as we noted when considering that passage, the reading which mentions the spirit is actually a variant that probably was not original. I'm convinced that the reference here is to the Holy Spirit, and the meaning would be that Paul received some sort of vision or direction which indicated to him that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and then to see Rome. I reach this conclusion because from this point on in the narrative of Acts, Paul's heart is set on these two locations. There will be occasions when friends try to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem, and when he realizes that his path to Rome will be potentially life-threatening, but he will not be deterred. As I read those accounts, I see something more like commitment than stubbornness. So I would suggest that here Paul has received some word from God that was perhaps vague and ambiguous, that Rome, by way of Jerusalem, is his intended course for Paul. And after such success in Ephesus, Paul must have been overwhelmed with imagining what might lie ahead. In fact, as we will see when Paul later writes a letter to the Roman church, he thought of this as the next great step in the evangelization of the world as he knew it. However, Paul did have certain concerns of his own, 
which he integrated into this new mission, particularly in reference to the congregations he had established in Greece during his previous missionary journey there, congregations like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Kentria. So first, he would pass through Macedonia and Achaia. Now, we would not be surprised that Paul wanted to do that if we only remember some of the challenges he and the other believers encountered while he was there with them. But there is reason to believe that it was more than just memory of past trouble that motivated his desire to visit them now. It is clear, both from the accounts in Acts and from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which he writes just around this time, that there was quite a bit of interaction between the Christians in Ephesus and those in Corinth. Apollos had traveled to Corinth from Ephesus to work with the church there in Acts 18, 27-28, and he later returned to Ephesus to meet Paul and join him in the work there, 1 Corinthians 16, 12. Evidently, he reported to Paul about some of the goings-on among the Corinthian Christians. To this report was added a letter, which a faction within the congregation wrote, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 mentions this, expressing some questions they hoped Paul would answer in a certain way to give credibility to their position. This is evident because Paul seems to quote the letter in his own epistle, and it's clear that they not only asked Paul what he thought about these matters, but they expressed their own opinions as well, and Paul did not end up agreeing with most of them. It seems that the letter was delivered by some people from the household of a sister named Chloe, 1 Corinthians 1.11, and these people added their own reports of what was going on, and Paul had further been visited by other Corinthian Christians who he mentions in 1 Corinthians 16, 17-18. Now, they may or may not have disclosed much information about the state of the church, but Paul has a sufficiently clear sense of things to be very concerned. Added to this, Paul wished to collect a financial offering from these churches to take with him to the poor saints in Jerusalem as a gesture of goodwill and love in the spirit of reciprocity, a way of fostering deeper fellowship between the Gentile and Jewish believers, by the former showing their appreciation with a material gift, to the latter for having helped Paul reach them with the gospel of the kingdom. David Lipscomb asserts that this collection was in reference to a famine, but this is only an assumption based on Paul's mention of his instruction to the churches of Galatia also in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. And I think it's a faulty assumption. This gift was not a response to a sudden need, but a gift of charity and fellowship. Paul's letter to the Corinthians indicates that they already knew that he had this plan and had agreed to support it, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. When he gives them instruction on when the money needs to be ready, he states that his instruction for them was the same as the instruction he had previously given to the churches of Galatia during a similar project many years earlier, namely that they should provide for this need from the collection they took on the first day of every week, when the church assembled regularly to eat the Lord's Supper and edify one another. But it was not only the church at Corinth which Paul planned to ask to give to this project. 
It was likely uh, not only the church at Corinth that he wished to visit and encourage before departing back to Judea, so he would tour the whole region. Verse 22, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. It seems that Paul's reason for sending these two who were helping him in Ephesus to visit Macedonia ahead of him was to invite those congregations to also contribute in his fundraising. Erastus was a good choice for that kind of work because he had been the city treasurer in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16.23, and was both qualified and accustomed to handling money. We had not learned that Timothy was with Paul in Ephesus. The last Luke reported Timothy left Paul in Corinth with the Thessalonian correspondence. His continuous reappearance in the narrative and his constant willingness to go and do whatever Paul asked him gives a beautiful commentary on Paul's description of Timothy as true, 1 Timothy 1-2, and beloved, 2 Timothy 2-2. Paul himself was not ready to leave Ephesus. Luke says he stayed in Asia for a time, and Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 16-8 that he hoped to leave sometime after Pentecost, and this is evidently to ensure that his travel plans allowed for adequate time in each location and good weather for his transit. Sometime after Timothy and Erastus left, Paul wrote the first Corinthian letter. It is one of the most renowned of Paul's works, primarily because of the range of its content, but it does include some beautiful sections and some powerful theological argument as well. It reveals that the Corinthian church was deeply troubled by divisions, and they ran in several directions and threatened to annihilate the congregation. However, it is noteworthy that Paul continued to view such a weakened and, in many respects, wayward group as the church of God which is at Corinth, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So he addresses them in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. God had begun a work in them, and their issues, though serious and threatening, had not negated what God had already accomplished or caused him to abandon his concern for them. There are various texts of Scripture which I believe teach the possibility of apostasy, of so utterly repudiating one's commitment to the loyalty of Jesus Christ that one disowns God and is in turn disowned by God. I believe the Bible teaches that this grim fate can befall entire congregations as well as individuals. But cases like Corinth remind us that God's love for us is unfathomably rich. And though all the rest of the world might give up on us and see no hope, the Lord will not forsake us and will continue work in us. One might think that Paul was only patient with Corinth because somehow he knew they would immediately change when he corrected them by this letter. Yet that is not so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and chapter 13, verse 1, which was written from Macedonia a short time after Paul's departure from Ephesus, he mentions that his personal visit to Corinth, which would come in the future, and would follow that letter, would be his third visit. 
Now, this means that Paul must have made an unrecorded trip to Corinth in between the first and second letters during that time when Luke says he stayed in Asia. It was seemingly a very short trip and an unpleasant one. And it further seems to have been motivated by a negative report from Timothy that the first Corinthian letter was not well received. This intermediate trip was evidently a failure for Paul, and he returned to Ephesus and sent Titus to the Corinthians in hoping that he might accomplish some good among them where others had been unable. Now, this is admittedly some difficult information to work through and reconcile, but regardless, we see remarkable patience in Paul's Corinthian ministry, and it would be a good example for the modern church workers to learn to emulate. Verse 23, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Recall that the way is evidently Luke's preferred term for not only the people of Jesus, but the system of teaching that gave definition to their lives. We might use the term Christianity, but perhaps we would do better to use this term, which the first believers found so meaningful and effective. To this point, Luke has only mentioned the trouble in the synagogue which burdened Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and it is noteworthy that Luke's telling of that event almost gives the impression that Paul withdrew quickly, one might even charge prematurely, merely in response to the first word of criticism. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says that a great and effective door was opened to him in Ephesus, describing his tremendous opportunities for evangelism. And we've already seen a sense of what sort of things he had in mind. Yet we might also wonder what Paul meant in that same verse when he added that he also had many adversaries in Ephesus. What we should learn is that Luke, like all writers, is selective in what he shares and has his own writing convention, which does not require an exhaustive report of facts that we might find interesting or even helpful, but are not pertinent to the story that he is telling. In fact, Paul's ministry in Ephesus was among the most perilous in his entire career. In 1 Corinthians 15, 30-32, Paul describes his time there as standing in jeopardy or great danger every hour. He further says, I die daily. And this is not a reference to some spiritual act of personal sacrifice or self-denial, but in this context, it means that Paul labored under the daily recognition that his life might well be taken from him, and it would be no surprise because of the opposition he was facing. He even says that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and commentators are divided over whether to take that literally as to say that at some point he was put in the arena with an animal and survived, or figuratively to describe the assaults he endured from wicked men. Whatever the case, it is a powerful and provocative statement of how challenging the Ephesian work was to Paul. With that in mind, we are not surprised that Luke reports the end of Paul's time there coincided with a great commotion about the way. Often we may tend to read statements like, about that time, as allusions to a far-off past with no real point of reference, almost like once upon a time in modern storytelling. 
But in this case, we actually know that it was spring of A.D. 57, as we would say, when the event Luke is about to describe took place. We can reach this degree of certainty because of some information we learn from Paul in 1 Corinthians about his plans to linger in Ephesus until after Pentecost, and information we learn from the narrative in Acts as well. The particular commotion Luke will describe took place during a festival known as the Artemisian, held in honor of the great goddess of Ephesus called Ephesian Artemis. We know this especially because Luke mentions that a certain kind of official was present called an Asiarch, Acts 19.31, and these were men who were elected to superintend games and festivals in the Asian provinces. That, combined with the evident time of year and the focus of the trouble, gives us a fairly clear sense of the occasion. Something should be said here at the outset about Ephesian Artemis. Some translations, like the New King James Version, which we've been using for this study, call her Diana, but this is a mistaken confounding of gods in the complex pantheon of the multicultural Roman Empire. Diana was the Roman counterpart to Greek Artemis, the daughter of Zeus and sister of Apollo, who in heaven was called Luna and considered the goddess of the moon. On earth was Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and in Hades had yet another identity. Artemis of the Ephesians, however, was the Asian counterpart to the Greek goddess Sibyl, the mother goddess, the great nurse of all things, whose realm was fertility and prosperity. The statue of Ephesian Artemis is believed to have been a meteor that became an object of devotion to the primitive society here because it fell from heaven, as the city clerk says in Acts 19 and 35, and because it was covered with protrusions, which some have interpreted as breasts, thus the nurse of all things, or as eggs, thus the mother of all things. Eventually, this image was either fashioned into something more elaborate or replaced by another statue in the same tradition. Being a fertility cult, the worship of Ephesian Artemis was especially obscene and filled with sexual immorality. The temple of Ephesian Artemis was one of the wonders of the ancient world. All that stands of it today is a single pillar in the desolate field where once the grand city was. At the time of Paul, the temple had been destroyed and rebuilt several times, and this iteration was 220 years in construction. The building was 377 feet long, 180 feet wide, and supported by 117 marble pillars, each of which was 60 feet tall. The doors and paneling were made of cypress, the roof of cedar, and the interior was lavishly decorated with gold and adorned with sculptures and paintings by several Greek master artists. In an impressive feat of engineering, the building was made to rest on layers of charcoal and animal hide stuffed with wool to protect it from earthquakes. It was often said to be the only house on earth truly worthy of a god. If you were to, today, visit the Eiffel Tower in Paris, France, you would find all around the base hawkers peddling miniature replicas of the tower. 
and in spite of their absurd price, many tourists feel compelled to purchase one as an act of homage to the opportunity they've had to visit such an amazing place. Had you visited Artemisian Temple in Ephesus, you would have found a similar scene. Numerous peddlers would set up shop around the facility and offer travelers a small silver shrine built in imitation of the temple and complete with its own miniature statue of the goddess. This would allow the pilgrim to take a little piece of this wonder of the world back home to his village and forever bless him for the effort he put forth to see the real temple with his own eyes. But verse 24 says, A certain man named Demetrius began to notice that something strange had happened since the Apostle Paul had come to town and begun his preaching and teaching among the people. Demetrius was, according to Luke, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, and evidently his shrines had always been particularly prized because Luke says he brought no small profit to the craftsmen, that is, the guild or union of workers to which he belonged. But lately, and especially now during this festival in honor of Ephesian Artemis, Demetrius noticed that there was shockingly little demand for his supply. Thus Luke reports, He called them, that is, the silversmith guild, together with workers of similar occupation, and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity from this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be despised, and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius was not incorrect. In fact, when Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, wrote to Emperor Trajan a half-century later, he described the effects of Christianity in his region as deserted temples, neglected worship, and hardly a single purchaser to be found of sacrificial victims. Paul, of course, had not singled out Ephesian Artemis, although her cult would have been especially nauseating in many respects, but in proclaiming the true God, it becomes quickly clear that these other things which are called gods, made with hands, are empty. Even if there is a demon behind them, it is certainly not worthy of devotion or adoration. Verse 28, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This was the mantra they regularly employed in their worship. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater, that is, the legendary and massive Ephesian amphitheater that could seat more than 20,000 people, with one accord, that is, there was no dissenting voice against this action, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. It seems that the crowd first went looking for Paul, was only able to find these two of his friends, Christians from Macedonia, who were assisting him in the work. Verse 30, And when Paul wanted to go into the people 
probably to try to save his friends, but also perhaps to address them with the message of Christ, the disciples, the other Christians in the city, would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. This is a fascinating statement. The officials of Asia, or Asiarchs, were almost certainly not Christians. Luke identifies them as friends of Paul and distinguishes them from the disciples. But beyond that, this position was actually a managerial role in relation to the Feast of Artemis that was going on at this time. It's absolutely amazing that even the organizers of this profoundly pagan event had been so impressed with Paul and perhaps also with the Christ he preached that they were here trying to save his life. The theater was certainly not a safe place to enter at this moment. If the people who led the charge had a unified purpose, which was bad enough, it had already dissolved into utter chaos, which is generally more destructive. Verse 32 says, Therefore, some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. There are a few things about this statement that are confusing. First, Luke names this Alexander as if he expects all readers to know him, but he gives no point of reference. Second, we're not sure what it meant that the Jews put him forward. Does this mean that he was accused by the Jews of being associated with Paul? Or does it mean that he was a representative for the Jews appointed by them to speak? Luke says that he motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I think the most likely meaning of this section is that the unbelieving Jews had appointed this man Alexander to speak to the crowd for the purpose of defending them against any allegation of association with Paul. It's interesting that we know of a man named Alexander, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, who evidently was from Ephesus and was of a similar trade to Demetrius. Paul says that Alexander was a coppersmith, and this man was notorious among the Christians for doing much harm to Paul over the span of many years, apparently. Paul, uh, or perhaps, rather, this is the same Alexander, and perhaps this is the beginning of his anti-Pauline career, at least an early part of it. On this occasion, whatever Alexander intended to accomplish, he failed. The crowds had no love for Jews, and they wouldn't listen to him, but instead praised their goddess for about two hours successively. Verse 35, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian to the great goddess Artemis, the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. The clerk thus dismissed Demetrius's concerns as an absurdity. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. 
Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have another inquiry uh, to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no good reason that we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. All through his record in the book of Acts, Luke is concerned to show that the Christians, though they were often involved in riots and social chaos, were not the cause of trouble and were not lawbreakers. This was an early apologetic, it seems. So Paul and the brethren in Ephesus were spared from any serious harm. And there's another interesting possible outcome. We've considered that Alexander, mentioned in this chapter, uh, might be Alexander the coppersmith, Paul's great enemy from this region for many years to come. But some scholars have suggested that this Demetrius might be the same one who John, writing from Ephesus, names as a commendable believer in later years, in 3 John verse 12. What a thought. If so, he could later share a testimony not unlike Paul himself, from persecutor to disciple. Chapter 20, verse 1. And when he, that is the city clerk, had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And so, though Paul dies daily and lives in jeopardy every hour, though enemies plot and rage, though circumstances appear dark and grim, the work of the kingdom continues. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.